Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour, and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. In looking at the final message, we're uh, brought to the book of Revelation because the book of Revelation gives us a picture of the things that will transpire just before the coming of Christ, particularly in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 6. We read about that in what is commonly referred to as the three angels' messages. And it says, And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. This is the first of the three angels' messages, and it's referred to here as the everlasting gospel. This is the gospel message that will go to the whole world. And we know that this is the final message, this is the last call to the world, because in the verses following, after the three angels' messages are given, we find the picture or the scene of the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. So that's why we know this is the final message represented there uh, in prophecy as the three angels flying. And uh, this is, of course, in harmony with the words of Christ where he said that this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then the end will come. And so this is the angel here fulfilling this prophecy of preaching the everlasting gospel to the whole world. This, of course, because it's in the book of Revelation, it's not a literal angel that is being referred to here. This angel represents a movement or a group of people who will preach the everlasting gospel to the world. What is this everlasting gospel all about? And the next verse gives us a bit more details here, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. So the everlasting gospel here has to do with fearing God, giving glory to him and worshiping him, worshiping him, of course, as the creator. This is the central theme and the key issue in the three angels' messages. It's, a, it's an issue of worship because this is what the contest is going to be about in the last days. It's an issue of worship. I, I'm going to be emphasizing that throughout our talks today because this is what uh, the devil's desire has been all along. It is to obtain or to get worship. And so the message that God sends, the final message, is to restore a correct understanding in relation to worship who we worship, when we worship, how we worship. All these are elements of worship. And so this is what is brought out in this particular verse here. And then it says that uh, this message has three uh, particular elements, really, or three instructions or admonitions. And uh, listed in order, they are fearing God, giving glory to Him, and worshiping Him. And if you look at the three angels' messages, the whole three, this is, these, are, these three elements here uh, cited in the first angel's message are the only ones that are uh, instructions or things that are given for us to do. The second angel does not tell us to do anything. It just simply says Babylon is fallen. We're going to see a little bit more of that a little later. And then the third angel also gives a warning about receiving the mark of the beast and his image and what will happen. Nothing else in the messages tells us to do anything except these three elements, to fear God, to give glory to him, and to worship him. It is actually failure to follow this injunction that results in the warnings that are given in the second and third angel's messages and the reception of whatever consequences result uh, that are listed. They result from failure to follow that. In other words, those who are referred to in the second and third angel's messages are those who do not fear God, do not give glory to him, and do not worship him. 
That's why we're saying the issue in the last days is an issue of worship. That's why it's vital for us to know who we worship. It's a vital part, a vital component of the message. And God has uh, raised a very special group of people in the last days to give the three angels messages. Uh, and we understand that we are mar marching orders because that is the relevant message at this time. So worshiping him that made heaven and earth, that's the creator. We want to identify that clearly because that's the question. It's the issue is an issue of worship. And the angel here says, fear God, give glory to him, and worship him. Who is he talking about? Who is the subject of this instruction? And if we were to ask this question, there's a variety of, uh, of answers that are usually given. You know, when we talk about God and our, under, our, our understanding and our concept of God is really going to govern our worship of God. So who we understand God to be will influence directly how we give worship and where we give worship. And so it's very important for us to identify who this God is that is being referred to here, this creator of heaven and earth. And we'll do a very brief uh, Bible uh, examination here to find the answer to this question as to who this creator God is. Acts 17, 24 tells us, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Here we have another description for the creator God who made heaven and earth. He's also referred to as... The Lord of heaven and earth is the maker of all things. And Paul here, of course, was preaching in Athens at the time and says that uh, God, this creator, this Lord of heaven and earth does not dwell in temples made with hands. So we want to have a clear identification as to who is being spoken about here. Because when we talk about worship, the most common idea that exists among, Christian, among Christians or in Christianity about God is that God is a trinity and that God is three in one and one in three or that God is made up of three persons, namely God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This is, uh, you know, every Christian basically knows that and pretty much believes that. Uh, and so when we talk about fearing God and worshiping Him, when we ask the question, who is this God? Many times that's the answer that's given. It's this three in one, one in three God. This is what we want to determine because... This is an issue that affects our worship. If we have a false concept or a false understanding of God, we will definitely have a false worship system. And this is what the first angel's message is all about. The very fact that God sends the three angels' messages and they have to do with worship is an indicator that most people have a problem when it comes to worship and worshiping the right God. The fact that God is reminding the world, saying, listen, fear God, give glory to him and worship him means something is not happening in that area. The world is not fearing God, is not giving glory to Him, and is not worshiping Him. So we want to determine and understand exactly who He is, who this Lord of heaven and earth really is. And the highest authority on the topic, of course, is Christ. So we want to see, according to Christ Jesus, who is this Lord of heaven and earth. And Matthew chapter 11, verse 25 tells us the answer. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and has revealed them unto babes. So according to Christ, the Lord of heaven and earth is one individual, one being, and it is uh, identified here as the Father, God the Father. And so when we go back to the three angels' messages, this last call to the world, fearing God, giving glory to Him, and worshiping Him, the first angel's message is really talking about God the Father. Uh, because it obviously says, worship Him. It doesn't, worship, it doesn't say worship them or anything of the sort. He is the God that is to be worshipped and understood, the position of God the Father, His authority, and a correct understanding of His position 
has been severely misunderstood in the world. And this is what the three angels' messages are designed to correct and to fix. That's what's referred to as the everlasting gospel. And uh, because this message goes to the whole world, it tells us that the whole world has come to misunderstand something about the position and authority of God the Father. It's a message to capture the attention of the whole world. When we talk about God being one, uh, like I said, the most common idea that exists today is that God is, is one in one sense, but really he's also three in another sense. And therefore you have this one and three and three and one. Uh, Deuteronomy 6.4 tells us here, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And we look at one in the scriptures, particularly in this verse, we find that the word Lord here in capital letters is, uh, comes from the Hebrew, original Hebrew, which is the proper name of God, which is Yahweh. Or it's pronounced in a variety of ways, but it's, it's the, known as the Tetragrammaton, which is the Hebrew name or the proper name for God. And it says here that he is one. And when it says here he is one, it, it's not talking about a compound or a unit or a group. It's talking about one individual person who has a name. And we're going to see that a little later because uh, our understanding of the concept of God biblically has to match up with everything that's been revealed in the scriptures all along. And this is what, this is what helps us understand what the first angel's message versus the final message is really talking about this one God or the one God of Israel or the one God of the Bible. We want to identify who that is. And again, Jesus helps us because he's, he came down from heaven to earth to reveal heavenly things to us, right? And so one day Christ was uh, conversing and one of the scribes came with a question to him. And the discussion they had helps us understand something about the identity of this one God. It's recorded in Mark 12, verse 28. To 32. And one of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning together and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Good question to ask Jesus. Of course, the scribe here was asking it as a, as a test. Now, if you were asked this question, you know, I guess uh, I'm not going to ask you to give an answer, but how would you give an answer? Usually the most common answer is to love God with all our heart and to love our neighbor. Very good answers. And uh, Jesus said that, but he said that only after he said something else. There's something that Jesus said before he said that. He answered, it says here, Jesus answered him. The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And then it's after that he says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. So I want to go back to what Jesus said first, because this is foundational. Before we can love God with all our heart, we need to know and understand who he is. Who is it that we are to love with all our heart? It is very futile to tell people the first commandment is to love God without really defining who this God is. There's many gods in the world today, many. Which one are we to love with all our heart, soul, and mind, and strength? That's what Christ starts with. And he says, listen, the first thing we need to understand is that God is one. And he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, which we just read. Here, Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And it is to love this one Lord, this one God with all our heart, is the whole essence of the gospel. This is the theme of the discussion here. And then the scribe uh, was very impressed because he had heard the answer that he kind of was expecting. 
this is what it says. And the scribe said unto him, Well, Master, thou hast said the truth. For there is one God, and there is none other but he. And then he goes on to agree with Christ that to love God with the whole heart is more than whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Very interesting that the scribe, in his uh, understanding of the scriptures, he had come to this conclusion that there is only one God and none other but he. And then I find in verse 34, a very beautiful conclusion to the story. And when Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, he said unto him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. Where are you in scripture here? I'm sorry. Mark chapter 12. Where this is the whole account is recorded in Mark 12, verses 28 to 32. So we're just going through, through each verse and we're finishing off there in verse 34. When Jesus heard him saying that, he says, he said, you're not far from the kingdom of God. So the question is, who is the subject of their conversation? They were obviously talking about how many people? Only one. The one God of the Bible. And according to the scribe, he says, there is this one God and none other but he. Who is the subject of the conversation that we are to love with all our heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and that we are to worship? And Jesus, again, gives us the answer, and it's recorded in John 8. And verse 54, as to who this God is that the scribe was referring to, that Christ was talking about. Jesus answered, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father that honoreth me, of whom ye say that he is your God. So the scribe understood that when the, the Bible talks about there is one God and none other but he, he was referring to God the Father. Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom. And so this one God, the God of Israel, the God of the Hebrews, the God of the Bible is God the Father. And when we talk about that, when we say God is one, uh, sometimes people say, yeah, well, it's true. But, you know, in the Hebrew, there is this Hebrew word called Elohim, which is uh, found in uh, the book of Genesis, when the, the Hebrew word for God in the book of Genesis, particularly there, the first couple of chapters, is Elohim. And uh, people say, well, Elohim is a plural word. And so this gives us a hint or an idea that, that God must be a plurality of some sort, that he is more than one. And uh, we find that because in, in Genesis, when it says, and God said, let us ma make man in our image, uh, the word there for God is Elohim. And so this is the, the belief a lot of people say, yeah, but, but one, one is re re referring to a unity, one unity of more than one person. This is who God is. Uh, this is not a correct or accurate understanding of the word Elohim. I'll tell you that straight off. Because if you look it up in the, in the concordance or the dictionary or, you know, the, the Bible lexicon, you'll find that the word Elohim is indeed a plural word. But the meaning of the word, the, it says plural intensive with singular meaning. In other words, it's a plural of majesty. It's a plural word that is used to denote greatness and majesty, not to den denote plurality. Now, I don't want you to just take my word for it. We're going to see how the scriptures uses that and look and check our answers in the Bible. We'll look at one example. There are many of that, but one of them is in Exodus 7.1. It says, And the Lord said unto Moses, <coughs> sorry, uh, unto Moses, See, I have made thee a God, and that's the Hebrew word Elohim there, to Pharaoh, and Aaron thy brother shall be thy prophet. So God said to Moses, I've made you Elohim. Does that mean that Moses was more than one person or that God had somehow, you know, multiplied him? No, not at all. So why in the world would God use this word to refer to a single individual being? What's the point he's trying to convey? Is he trying to tell us that Moses was more than one somehow in some mystical way? Not at all. He's simply using this word because this denotes greatness and majesty. In other words, God was telling Moses, I'm going to make you like me. 
you're going to have to fear or you're going to have a position like I have. And this is explained in Exodus 11.3. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. Why was he great? Or very great? Because God had said, I have made you Elohim. I have made you a God to Pharaoh, and Aaron thy brother shall be thy prophet. And so the word Elohim does not mean a plurality of persons. It denotes greatness and majesty. And this is how it is consistently applied to God, the God of the Bible or the God of the Scriptures. And uh, this is repeated time and again. We'll look at a few other verses to that effect. According to Christ in John 17, 3, he tells us who the only true God is. He says, and this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Now, if you read that prayer carefully, you find that Jesus was actually praying to his Father. He refers to his Father as the only true God. And eternal life is all about knowing this only true God. And not him only, but also him who he has sent, which is Jesus Christ, who was sent by the Father, by God the Father. This is what eternal life is all about. I want to keep this point in mind because we're going to come back to it. Eternal life, brothers and sisters, is based on knowing how many individuals. According to this verse, only two. That's what Jesus says, to know the only true God and to know Jesus Christ whom he has sent. This is what eternal life is all about. We're going to see why this is so. Because again, this links in with what we're talking about, the everlasting gospel, and that message going out to all the world, to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. Paul affirms the same fact as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 6, this is what Paul says. But to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by Him. When Paul talks about uh, to the Corinthians, and he says, to us there is but one God. Who is he referring to when he says us? He's referring to believers, to Christians. Paul is including himself with the believers. He says, listen, you know, to us, in contrast with these uh, idol worshippers, there are many gods in the world. This is the context he's dealing with. And, uh, you know, to us as Christians, in contrast to that, we only have one God. And then he identifies who this one God is. It is the Father. And then he says, of whom are all things. The one God of the Bible, brothers and sisters, is God the Father. And there is none other but He. He is the one source of everything there is. That's what Paul is telling us. Of course, this is in harmony with all the other verses that we found. And now, of course, he tells us that there is one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things. And we're going to see a little bit more about that. But we just want to understand, first and foremost, the position of the Father. Because this is what the first angel's message is all about. You see, it's impossible for you to give the first angel's message correctly if you don't understand who is the God that is being referred to in that message. You would be absolutely wasting your time convincing yourself that you are giving the three angels messages if you do not have an understanding of who is it that the angel is talking about at the very first thing that he says when he says, fear God and give glory to him. Maybe, just maybe, that's why we're still here. Because the three angels messages, their work and their function is designed to bring about the end. It's when this gospel of the kingdom is preached in all the world for a witness to all nations. Then the end comes. That's what Jesus said. The end is not here yet, so this is why we need to look carefully. Are we truly understanding the three angels' messages? Are we really preaching them as the scripture tells us? Or have we missed something along the way? 
That's why Paul says here to us, there is but one God. And of course, Jesus affirmed that a number of places. One other place is when he was talking to the woman at the well, talking about true worshipers and who the true worshipers will worship. John 4, 23, but the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth for the Father seeketh such to worship him. True worshipers. The issue in the last days is over. Worship. The true worshipers in the last days are going to worship who? The Father. Because they heed the message, fear God, give glory to him, and worship him that made heaven and earth. That's who they worship. And they are the ones who give this message to all the world to worship God, the true God. That's why there's confusion today about worship. That's why there, are, there is a whole heap of uh, ideas and varieties and concepts about who God is, what he might be, who he might be, and all these things. That's why we want to clarify that a little bit today uh, from the scriptures and see how these things all fit together. Because we cannot afford to go into the last days, brothers and sisters, with confusion in our mind over who we worship. The issue in the last days is not simply over which day do you worship God on. That's what it is in a lot of people's minds. You know, which day? Which is the right day and the wrong day? That is only secondary to who is worshipped on the day of worship. I don't think I need to ask you which is more important, the God of the day or the day on which we worship God. You know, we, we come together and this is the day God has blessed. We come together to worship the creator and maker of this day. That's what uh, is the most vital and most important thing. And so when we talk about God being the only true God and there's none other but he, the question usually arises in people's minds. I'll say, well, that makes sense, you know, brother, you're sharing with us some very clear scriptures, and, and yeah, that seems to make sense, but what about Christ, you know? You, you kind of left Christ out of the picture here. You're saying that the God of the Bible is the Father, and there's none other but He, well, you know? I thought Jesus was in there somewhere. So we want to look at Christ, and we want to see how Christ fits into this picture, and how we relate to this true God, the Father, and uh, how Christ has a very vital and integral role in that. Jesus, of course, in John 14 and verse 6, said something very significant. He says to Philip, Jesus, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. What was Jesus meaning here when he said that? He said he is the way. And particularly, he says he is the way to the Father. Access to the Father can only happen through Christ, according to this verse. Now, this includes even worship. The worship that we give to God goes to God through the way, namely Christ. You with me? Now, this is very significant because the angel said we are to worship God. The worship that we give to God can only go to God through the way, which is Christ. I'm not sure if you ever wondered about that, but why is it so? Why is it that Christ is the only way to the Father and no one else? This is a very exclusive claim here that Christ is making. What makes Christ so unique that he can make this claim so that even worship and prayer and praise and everything, our relationship with God can only happen through Christ? Why is this so? I'm not sure if you asked yourself this question or not, but I have. And uh, we want to discover a little bit together as we go here why this is so because when i read you know the questions are you know what about jesus is jesus 
divine? Do we give worship to Jesus as well as to the Father? How does he fit into the picture? Why is he in this position where he refers to himself as well as being the door? You know, a little later in John, earlier rather, in John 10, Jesus referred to himself as the door. And the only way to enter in is through him. All these pictures, all these images, he's also called the only mediator between God and man. The question is, why? Why does Christ hold this unique and exclusive position? And there is a very, very clear reason. We already read this verse, and I said, let's keep it in mind, because this is one to, what we want to explore. Knowing, sorry, eternal life is knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. We found out who the only true God is. It's God the Father. We want to find out the position that Christ holds as the scent of God and why he also is vital in this particular uh, subject we're talking about. In 1 Corinthians 3.23, we have a very interesting verse. Paul says, And ye are Christ's, and Christ is God's. If you look at another translation, it spells it out for us a little clearer. It says, You belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. I'm not sure if you ever pondered this verse or not, but it's right there in the Scripture. It's short but very profound. It says, Christ belongs to God. Obviously, God here is referring to the Father, right? That's what we found out. Something here interesting. Why is Christ God's? Why does Christ belong to God? Why does the scripture even use this, uh, this language? We don't generally refer to Christ or even see Christ in this way, generally speaking. What point is Paul making here that Christ belongs to God and how is that possible? Well, God answered the question actually and told us how Christ belongs to him in the, in the baptism of Christ. In Matthew 3.17, we read about that. It says, a low, a low voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We know that the voice from heaven was the voice of God the Father. He was speaking and he was indicating here how this person, Christ, belongs to him. He says, He is my Son. My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And of course, a little later in the story of Jesus, we find that uh, when he was transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration, the three disciples that were there, they heard the voice of God the Father again speaking. He says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. God is here identifying something very significant about Christ. He's telling us how Christ belongs to him. This relationship of Christ being the son of God is what makes Christ God's. And he belongs to God. Well, what does that mean? Because... It's obviously so important that God spelled it out. You know, he, he said it with his own voice from heaven. What does it mean for Christ to be the Son of God? That's really the key that helps us appreciate and understand why he is the only way to the Father. Now, if we talk about Christ being the Son of God, people say, well, everybody believes that. At least every Christian believes that or professes to believe that Christ is the Son of God. We want to examine how the Scripture reveals him as the Son because it helps us appreciate his position his unique and outstanding position as the only begotten son. This is very significant and so important because that's what the apostles preach. In Acts chapter 9, verse 20, we read concerning Paul after his conversion. It says, And straight away he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the son of God. Paul was an avid opposer of the Christian faith. And uh, on his way to Damascus there, he was converted. Jesus appeared to him. And this is a record of the very first sermon that Paul ever preached as a Christian. The subject matter for his sermon that Sabbath day was that Christ is indeed the Son of God, which tells us what he believed before that, right? 
that he did not believe that Christ was the Son of God. So as soon as he was converted, this is the first thing that he, that he preached. Why? Because this is, excuse me, this is the foundational pillar and belief of the Christian church. Remember when Jesus was speaking one day and he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus says, Peter, I'm going to build my church on this rock. The rock is what that statement of faith, that declaration of faith that Peter gave, that Christ is the Son of the living God. The church of Jesus Christ is built on this foundational truth. And so it's no surprise that the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest apostles that we are familiar with, the very first thing that he preached as a Christian was the foundation. He was laying down the foundation that Christ is indeed the Son of God. Very, very significant point. And we'll see its importance as, as we go along. But, you know, God the Father declared it. The apostles preached it. Not only that, but Jesus was going to be killed over this very fact as well. John 5.18 tells us why the Jews wanted to kill Christ. Therefore, the Jews sought the more to kill him because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Very interesting verse. Jesus made a claim here. He said that God was his father. In other words, that he was the son of God. And the Jews, when they heard this, they understood him to mean correctly that he was making himself equal with God. Now, I'll ask you a question. Did Jesus say that he was equal with God? No, that's not what he said. He said, I am the son of God, or that God is his father. And the Jews understood that makes him equal. You see, there's a relationship here. There is no question that Christ is equal with God. His equality is based on something. It's based on a fact. It's based on the fact that he is the son of God. That's what the Jews understood here. And when they understood that, that he was in essence claiming the divine nature to be his own, that he is the son of God, they understood that to be blasphemous. They didn't believe that he really was who he said he was. And so they took up stones and they wanted to stone him. But the key point here I don't want us to miss is that the divinity of Christ is actually based on the fact that he is the son of God. Sonship is the basis for equality. And so if you want to question the equality of Christ, or if you want to de uh, detract from the equality of Christ, what would you attack the basis for that equality, which is his sonship? This is why we see the devil had a problem with that. And we see this because in the wilderness of temptation, you remember, what's the first thing the devil said to Jesus? If you are the son of God. What was he doing? He was attacking his sonship. In other words, he was questioning and actually attacking his divinity. Sonship is the basis for his divinity. This is his relation to his father. And we will see that as well. And uh, we want to explore how exactly Christ is the son of God. What does that mean? John 3.16, one of the most beloved and familiar verses in scriptures. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is telling us about the love of God the Father. God the Father loved us so much that he gave his only begotten son. So here it tells us how Christ is a son. It says he is the begotten son. He's the only begotten son. If you look up the meaning of that word, you will find that it means only born. Begotten is only born. Christ is the only born, only begotten son of God. Of course, we're referring here to God the Father. And uh, 
God revealed his love to us in giving us this son. John 1.14 spells it out so we don't, you know, misunderstand it. In the word, speaking of Christ, was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He's the only begotten of the Father. He's the only born of the Father. Every single one of us here today is a begotten child, correct? We're all born from our Mothers, every single one here, no need to ask for a show of hands. Christ says he is the, uh, the word says about Christ, he's the only begotten of the Father. He was born of the Father. This is how he is the Son of God. You see, his sonship is not a title that is given to him. It's not an, a, a position that he fills by bestowal. It's not a prophetic title. It is not uh, an, in, uh, uh, an adoption. He's actually begotten. Of the Father. And so that's why he's full of grace and truth. <clears throat> so the question we need to ask, therefore, is well, when was Christ begotten of the Father? A lot of people believe that Christ became the only begotten when he was born on earth in Bethlehem. That's when he was born of Mary. The scripture actually tells us that Christ was begotten of the Father. On earth he was born indeed of Mary. He was born as a man. But in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, we have a prophecy that gives us a bit of an insight about that. It says, But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old from the days of eternity. This is a prophecy, of course, about the birth of Christ on earth, where he would be born in Bethlehem. And then it says that when he would be born there, this is not the beginning of his existence. He actually existed before he was born as a man. His goings forth are actually from of old, from the days of eternity. So it's pointing us way further back than Bethlehem into the days of eternity to look for the goings forth of Christ. If you look up the meaning of goings forth here, you will find that it actually means family descent or origin. So the family descent of Christ or his existence really does not begin in Bethlehem. It begins way further back. So this is where we need to look to find when he was begotten of the Father. It was well before Bethlehem. And we find the answer in Proverbs chapter 8, where Jesus speaking here through the wise man Solomon under the title of wisdom. Christ is the wisdom of God. And here it tells us the Lord. And uh, we found that out already. So the Lord in capital letters, who's that talking about? This is the, the Hebrew, Yahweh, okay? This is the proper name of God the Father, the God of the Bible. The Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way before his works of old. I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning or ever the earth was. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, was I brought forth. This is Christ speaking of a time before anything was made or created where he says that this is how the Father possessed him. Again, we see here this sense of belonging. Like Paul says, Christ belongs to God. How the Father possessed Christ is that Christ was brought forth from the Father. He is the only begotten Son before anything was ever made or created. And the term brought forth here simply means what it says, to be born or to come out of. It's equivalent to the only begotten in the New Testament. And then it goes on to say, 
verses 26 to 30. While as yet he had not made the earth, nor the fields, nor the highest part of the dust of the world, when he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he set a compass upon the face of the depth, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he gave to the sea his decree that the waters should not pass his commandment, when he appointed the foundations of the earth, then I was by him as one brought up with him, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. So here Christ is saying, by the time creation took place, I already was there. As a matter of fact, I was a worker with my father when everything was made. That's why scripture tells us that all things were made by Christ or through Christ. God the Father is the source of everything. And through Christ, his son, his only begotten son, he created and made everything that exists. And this is why the birth of Christ from the Father predates the creation of anything. The scripture makes that very, very plain. A number of places. And <clears throat> John uh, 1 is one, of, one such place. John 1, 1 is one of those verses that some people get a little bit confused over. I want to mention it here because it's very relevant in this context. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We know a few verses later in verse 14, we just read it, that the Word is Christ. This is talking about Christ. And it says that he was with God where? In the beginning. We just read about that beginning in Proverbs 8, right? Where he says, the Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way before his works of all. That's how I was with him by the time creation took place. And John is making reference to this. And he says, in the beginning was this word, was Christ. And he was with God. And God here is, of course, none other than God the Father. And then it says the Word was God. And this is what throws a lot of people off because they say, well, you know, God and the Word is God. Maybe both of them make up one God. This is what throws a lot of people off. Uh, it doesn't really mean that. It's a very simple, easy way to explain this. Uh, in the Greek, it actually says the Word was with the God, referring to God the Father. If we just look at a comparison between Adam and Eve who were made in the image and likeness of God. And if we read this verse this way, it'll make a lot more sense as far as why Christ is referred to as God in that verse. If we were to say, in the beginning was the woman, and the woman was with the human, and the woman was human, would that be a correct statement or not? What do you think? What do you think about that? In the Garden of Eden, right? This is the beginning we're talking about. When, when the woman came into existence, she was taken out of a rib, out of Adam's side. Uh, there is the woman, and she was with the human, correct, in the garden? Yeah. And the woman also had the very same nature as Adam, which is the human nature. You see, the word God, brothers and sisters, is used many times as a noun, but also as an adjective. You know, as a noun, it's referring to the God. It identifies who he is. It's also used as an adjective, and this is how it's referring to Christ. It tells us what nature Christ possesses. He possesses the God nature. It's not trying to tell us that Christ and the Father are one and the same person or individual. It's not trying to say that. It's trying to tell us that Christ has the very same nature of his Father. Just like the woman has the very same human nature as the very first human. And we're going to see a little bit about that as well. But there are a number of different translations. I'll just put them all up here. Quickly, and this is what John 1 is talking about. It says the word was divine, or the logos was divine. What God was, the word was, the word was divine, the word was with God and shared his nature. And the nature of the word was the same as the nature of God. This is what it means in John 1 1. It says, and the word was God. He has the God nature. And he has that by virtue of the fact that he is the only begotten Son. Just like every 
one of us has the same nature as our parents. And the reason why we have the same nature as our parents is because we inherited that. That's our very first inheritance. When we go to the hospital, when you know a child is born, we do not expect that child to be any other species other than human, correct? It's even you know weird to even suggest that because it's so standard. So that's what we expect every time. We do not expect anything else. Well, God set up this, this rule, this system. He set it up because it's a reflection of an original reality. Christ was begotten of the Father, and he inherited from his Father the God nature. That's what makes him divine. That's what we're saying. His sonship is the basis of his equality. If anyone would question if you're human or not, all you have to do is show them that your parents are human. That's the nature that you have. And so this is what we're talking about. Well, does begotten mean created? Some people uh, say, well, what are you trying to say here? You know, are you trying to say Christ is begotten? That's like saying he's created, you know? And uh, the answer is no, that does not mean the same thing. You see, Christ was brought forth or begotten. We read that in the scriptures. Lucifer is the very first creature we know and understand that was created by God. He was created and made out of nothing. There was nothing there and then God created Lucifer. Lucifer is not begotten of the Father. He's created out of nothing. Christ was begotten and born of the Father. That's why he inherited the divine nature. There is a very vast distinction. There's a distinction between the, the creature and the one who made him. It was Christ who actually created Lucifer. And so it is Lucifer's intention, and that was his desire in heaven, to equate himself with Christ and with God. And so this is why it is an idea that finds its origin in Satan's mind to make creation equal to begotten. So anyone who says that Christ is created is really repeating what Lucifer's logo was or, or motto in, in, uh, in the war in heaven. Begotten, brothers and sisters, is a unique thing that only applies to Christ. He is the only begotten of the Father. There are no other beings in the whole universe that were begotten of the Father. You see what I'm saying? There is a distinction, a very important distinction here I don't want us to miss uh, in light of, of what we're talking about here. So Christ being the only begotten of God helps us also understand a whole heap of other things that, that we will come to as well. Let's look at... Uh, if Christ declared this fact when he was here on earth. John 8, verse 42. Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, neither came I of myself, but he sent me. And proceeded forth here and came from God means exactly what it says. I came out of God. I was born of God. That's what the meaning. Just like Eve was, was taken out of man, she came out of Adam. Just like each and every one of us was taken out of our mothers, we proceeded forth and came out of our parent, of our mothers. Christ proceeded forth and came from God, and then he was sent to this earth. He's the only begotten and well-beloved son. That was his teaching. John 16, 27 is another place where he says that. The Father himself loveth you because you have loved me and, I, and have believed that I came out from God. What was the belief of the disciples? That Christ was the son of God. How is he the son? He was begotten. He was born. He came out of God. That is what makes him so unique and so special, brothers and sisters. That is why he is the only one who is most intimately acquainted with the Father. He's the only one who truly and correctly revealed the Father and is the only one through whom we can come to the Father. He's the way to the Father. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And the inheritance of Christ 
is mentioned here in Hebrews chapter 1 as, as to what he inherited. Verse 3 and 4, it says, Who being, speaking of Christ, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Christ has by inheritance obtained what? A name. It tells us earlier in the verse that he's the express image of the Father's person. is in all the brightness of his majesty and glory. Whose name did Christ inherit? The name of his Father, right? Now, name means a number of things in Scripture. It doesn't only mean, you know, what we call you. Name also means in Scripture, character and nature and authority. When we're all born, we inherit the, nat the, the nature of our, of our parents. We also inherit the name of our parents, correct? That's our automatic inheritance. Christ inherited the name of his father. That's why we refer to him as divine. He has that nature. His father is called God, and he refers to his son as God. We understand now why that is so. So it's not like we have multiple sources or multiple gods. There's only one God, the father. He is the source. Christ inherited the God nature of his father, the divine nature. And since he's the only begotten son, we immediately know there are no other beings in the universe that have that nature. Only the son of God has that. And this is really what makes him equal with the father. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 6 tells us that. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Christ was in the form of God. And Christ was also equal to God. Now, I hope you understand a little better why this is so. How Christ is equal. His equality is really based on the fact that he is born or begotten of the Father. Now, when we talk about this, the question arises, well, what about the Holy Spirit? Well, that makes sense. You know, talk about God, the Father is the only true God, none other but he. Okay, Christ all right, well, th that makes sense. He's, he's still divine. Now we understand how he is divine. He's begotten. What about the Holy Spirit? Because the idea is that there are three co-equal, co-eternal persons that make up this one God, the idea that is called the Trinity. How does the Holy Spirit fit into this? And what does the Holy Spirit have to do with the three angels' messages that we've been talking about? Like we just read in Philippians 2.6, that Christ is in the form of God. It immediately tells us something, that God has a form, right? And that Christ was in that form. And when God made Adam and Eve, God made man in the image and likeness or in the form of him and his son, of course. The, uh, the Bible talking about God having a form. This is not a concept that many times we, uh, we find common when it comes to understanding who God is. Usually the idea is that God exists but he does not have any form or any shape. He does not have any physical existence. Now, you might believe that or not. That's the, I'm not sure. But this is a very common idea. That God is simply and purely spirit. But here it very clearly tells us that God has a form. Christ was in that same form. Not only here, but also Jesus said it in John 5 verse 37. For the Father himself, and the Father himself, which hath sent me, hath borne witness of me. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape. So according to Jesus, 
His father has a, a shape. That's a physical component. There's, there's some kind of physicality here. So God the Father, according to the scriptures, has a form, he has a shape. He exists on a physical and therefore visible level. In other words, the beings that are in heaven who have thrones that surround the throne of God can actually look at the throne of God and they can see there is someone there. It's not empty. It's not just spirit, you know, filling just space. And it's not just a concept or an idea. God is an actual real being, brothers and sisters. He has form. He has shape. And we're actually promised if we get to the kingdom, it says his servants shall see his face in the book of Revelation, correct? So God exists on a physical and visible level. And this is clearly told in the scripture. Some, apostles, uh, some uh, prophets were privileged to see some visions of God. Ezekiel is one of them. Notice what he says here in verse 26. And above the firmament that was over their heads was the likeness of a throne as the appearance of a sapphire stone. And upon the likeness of the throne was the likeness as the appearance of a man above upon it. Well, if we're saying God has form and shape, what does he look like? Ezekiel saw it and he says he looks like a man as the appearance of the likeness of a man. It's actually the other way around, really, because it was man who was made in the likeness of God. God was the original. Man looks like God. And so the physical components of man, having two arms and, and a head and so on, was made to look like God. So God who exists on the physical and visible level is a God who is the original for mankind. You know what I'm talking about? Now, this might be a little bit, like I said, a little bit new to you because we do not generally think of God in these terms. In, in Christendom, the, the belief, particularly the belief in the Trinity, is that God is pure spirit. He does not have any physicality whatsoever. But we don't find that this is the Bible teaching. And it's important for us to understand this because, you know, when we get to heaven, heaven is a real place, brothers and sisters. You know, if the God of heaven is not real, is not physical, on what basis do we then believe that there are other physical things in heaven? If, if, if the occupant of the throne of heaven is not a real, tangible person, then maybe there isn't a throne there after all. Why would you have a throne for no one to be there? You know, maybe it's just representative. Maybe it's just a symbol, right? And then you can follow that logically, and then heaven becomes this airy-fairy, non-existent place. As a matter of fact, so a lot of people believe that heaven is only a state of, of mind. Why is that? Because at the core of it, if God is only an idea or a concept or a spirit, then on what basis is heaven a real place? And it really destroys everything. And so, which is spirituality or what you call it, spiritualizing things away or spiritualism. This is really what we're talking about. Very popular, prevalent in the New Age movement today. Uh, I guess you're familiar with that. That's, that's kind of the end thing with a lot of people. And this is the, the basic premise of it. That heaven is really here on earth. You just have to realize it's up here. How you need to wake up to heaven being a state of mind. So God is real. God is an actual being. And he's not just a physical being. Of course, this is the verse we usually refer to. John 4, 24, Jesus said, God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So God is not only a physical being who exists on a physical and visible level. God is also a spirit being. And as a spirit being, he, the same God, which is the father, also exists on a spiritual and therefore invisible level. This is a very important point. If, if, we, if we can grasp a hold of that, we will not have so much trouble understanding what the scripture means when it talks about the Holy Spirit or who it's talking about when it talks about the Holy Spirit. Because God has that. He is a physical and he is 
a spiritual or a spirit being, as Jesus was saying here. What does spirit mean? A number of verses tell us. We'll just look at this briefly. Isaiah 40 and verse 13 says, Who has directed the spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor, has taught him? In Romans 11.34, Paul quotes this verse, and he says, For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor? Here we see that spirit means mind. Mind is an invisible thing, isn't it? Just because you don't see it doesn't mean it's not there. If I ask you today if you have a mind, everybody should say yes. You better say yes. Okay? But you can't take it out and show it to me. You can't, I can't look at it. I can't touch it. I can't take a picture of it. It's an invisible part of our being. I can look at your brain, but that's not your mind. Your mind dwells and lives in your brain. The brain is the physical component that houses your mind. But your mind or your spirit, really, that's what we're talking about, is an invisible and yet real part of your being. No one would deny that we have a mind. You just can't take a picture of it and put it on display. And so the Bible, we get this from the scriptures because God is the great original that made man in his image. So God, God's spirit refers to also God's mind. Uh, I want to look at this just in detail. We're just almost finished here, but I want to uh, look at some details to help us understand this because it'll help in everything else we have to talk about today. In Daniel 2, we have the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. And notice what it says here in verse 1. And in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams, or with his spirit was troubled and his sleep break from him. I ask you a question. Who was troubled according to this verse? It was Nebuchadnezzar, right? But the scripture tells us here is that his spirit was troubled. So what does that mean? Something on the inside of Nebuchadnezzar was troubled and distressed as a result of this dream. Particularly where? In his Mind. His mind was troubled. You would never ever understand that someone other than Nebuchadnezzar was troubled when you read this verse, right? If, if, you, if you read that verse this way, we would think there's something wrong with your mind, correct? You know, you wouldn't think there's someone next to him or someone in the next room or someone called his spirit other than him that was troubled. That's a very, very odd and strange and incorrect way to understand the scripture. Now remember, this is important to help us understand what the Bible means when it talks about the Spirit of God. Because to a lot of people, when we talk about the Spirit of God, many people automatically understand, oh, that the Spirit of God is someone else besides God. It's not God the Father Himself. It's someone else, someone who might go by the name of God the Spirit or whatever other name or explanation there is, but it is someone else. The problem with that is it's not what the scripture tells us. It's not consistent with the way uh, God has created mankind and revealed things about himself. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 2.11 for some more details about that. Here Paul says, For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man, but the spirit of God. Paul here is making a comparison. Uh, not a contrast, but a comparison. He says, The same relationship that man has with his spirit of knowing what's on the inside. He says, even so, this is how it is. The things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. So the relationship between man and his spirit is similar to the relationship between God and his spirit because we were made in the image of God. Now, this might be very simple, basic. Uh, I'm, the reason why I'm doing it this way because it is really simple and basic. We have complicated things needlessly. No... There is no time ever that we understand 
that the spirit of man is a different individual or a separate person to the man himself. If, if uh, you know, you say something nice to me after today, and I can say to you, you've really cheered my spirits, right? You would not understand me to be talking about someone else. Just we, just we looked at uh, in Nebuchadnezzar. My spirit is a part of me. And in like manner, Paul says here, God's spirit is a part of him. It's not separate to him. It's not besides him. It's not a different or another person. It is he himself. Someone said, well, you know, that, that puts a different perspective on things. That's, that's great. Because this is going to affect and impact our worship. And how we understand and uh, relate to God. What else is the Spirit? Is it only a force? Psalm 139 and verse 7 says, Whither shall I go, David here says, Whither shall I go from thy Spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? God's Spirit is God's presence. On which level? Not the physical and visible, but on the spiritual invisible. The same God, He can do that. I don't know how He can do that, but... He says he does that, and I believe that. We prayed this morning, right? We prayed for, for the Lord to bless us and for his presence to be here. We believe that. But we can't see him. We cannot feel him physically. But the God who sits on the throne of heaven, who physically sit, is sitting on the throne there, he is by his spirit or his presence also dwelling in the gatherings of his people. He doesn't have to send someone else to do that job for him. He can do that himself. He's God. This is what David is talking about here. Another place he also says the same thing. Psalm 51, 11, Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. The Holy Spirit is the presence of God. The reason why it's called holy is because it's descriptive of the nature of the Spirit. It is holy because God is holy. The source of that Spirit is a holy God. And so it is a Holy Spirit. It's God's holy presence. <clears throat> and this is what scripture tells us that it actually comes from God John uh, 15 26 tells us Jesus taught that but when the comforter is come whom I will send unto you from the father even the spirit of truth which proceedeth from the father he shall testify of me according to Jesus the Holy Spirit which is the comforter proceeds from the father finds its origin in the Father. It is that part of God where He can operate and function and behave on the spiritual and invisible level. But that's not the only place. We see that the Spirit also comes from Christ Himself. John 20 and verse 22. And when He has said this, Jesus that is, He breathed on them and said unto them, Receive ye the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost. Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit is the same thing. It's the exact same word in the Greek. Uh, sometimes ghost throws people off. I like to use Spirit because it's more consistent with the way it's translated. Uh, the Holy Spirit here, according to this verse, came from where? From Jesus himself. He breathed on them, and that breath was significant. It was symbolizing and, and signifying something. The reception of the Holy Spirit. It comes from Christ. So it comes from the Father. It comes from Christ. And of course, the reason is Christ inherited all things from his Father. And that's why it's referred to as both the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. Romans 9, 8, 9 and 10 tells us that. But you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So here we find that this Spirit, there is really only one Spirit. This Spirit is called, first of all, called the Spirit of God. And then it's called the Spirit of Christ. 
Paul is not talking about two different spirits here, right? He's talking about the same spirit, the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ. And he says, this is how Christ can be in you. You see, Christ is also a physical being. He now took on humanity. But he still is a God being that he has the God nature. And so he also can operate and function on a spiritual and invisible level. And when you have the spirit, it's actually the very presence of God and also the presence of Christ. It's how Christ dwells in our heart. And that spirit is also life, as it says there. That's what spirit also means. It is mind. It is life. It is character. It is God's very own presence. We see that when God created Adam, he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Adam became, became a living soul or a living, living creature. Uh, yeah, that's, that's what John 6, 63 says there. Uh, I just want to come to one particular verse which throws a lot of people off and the reason why I want to use it is there is a misunderstanding about the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit is a person besides the Father and the Son. This misunderstanding causes a lot of confusion. This is what's referred to commonly as the concept of the Trinity. Now, I don't know if, you, if you've... Uh, what we're sharing here, if you've been listening, what we're talking about is not what is commonly taught and understood to be the concept of the Trinity. We just simply looked at what the Scripture has to say. And so the Scripture does not really support that concept or that teaching. We're going to look at its origin in a minute as soon as, as soon as we finish. We have a little break. But in receiving the Holy Spirit, we really actually receive none other than the, the origin of that Spirit, which is Christ and the Father, of course. And Christ said that very plainly in John 14, 23. He said, uh, speaking there to Judas, Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. We, the Father and I, will come. How the Father and Christ come, they, they don't have to get off the throne physically. They don't have to travel physically out of heaven and come here. They send the Holy Spirit, which comes from the Father, and it comes through the Son and from the Son. And it's the presence of God himself. The Father and the Son dwell with us and actually in us, not someone else. Now, the reason why a lot of people think it's someone else is based on, on misunderstanding the words of Christ. John 14, 16, and 26 is one of those verses that is commonly misunderstood, but it's a beautiful verse. Jesus says, I'll pray the Father, and he'll give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. And then verse 26, he says, but the comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. And usually uh, the idea is people say, well, you know, here Jesus said it, it's another comforter. And so it's not Christ, it's not the Father, it's another person, it's another comforter. And it actually says, he will teach us all these things. It must be another person. Uh, this is not what Jesus was meaning at all. Jesus was talking about the other comforter because he was referring to another way that he was going to be with his disciples. Not that he was going to send another person different to him. We see that because he actually explains it himself. We understand what spirit means. Look at a few verses. Galatians 4, 6 says, Because you are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The spirit of the son is not a different person to him, just as, just as your spirit is not a different person to you. It's actually the Lord himself. And this is what the scripture says in 2 Corinthians 3, 17. Now the Lord is that spirit. 
And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So are we trying to say that the Holy Spirit is really Christ himself, not someone else? The scripture says that. The Lord Jesus, this is who the Lord is. He is that spirit. He's the only one who can bring liberty. He's the one who said, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free what? Indeed, right? And this is why a little later in that same chapter, this comforter, Jesus in John 14, 18, told us who this comforter is. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. So this other comforter is Christ. But he doesn't come to us physically like he was with the disciples. He comes to us in another way. The same person, but in another form. He comes by his spirit. He dwells with us and in us. And that's what we pray to receive. And so I'll uh, close with a beautiful verse that summarizes everything we talked about today. Revelation 14, the three angels' messages begins with the first angel. It says, fear God, give glory to him, and worship him. We've identified who God is. We've identified how we can give glory and worship to him. It's only through his son. And we saw why it is that it is only through his son that we do that. He's his only begotten son. And this is also how we give worship to him. Ephesians 2.18 puts it all together in one verse. I really like this verse. It says, for through him, that's through Christ, we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. And uh, what this verse here is telling, it's not telling us about the Trinity. Now we understand that what, what each one there means. Christ is the only way to the Father. We don't have Christ as one way, and then the Spirit is another alternative route. Christ is the only way, and Christ is still the way. It's His Spirit. It's not anyone other than Him that gives us this access to the Father. This is how our worship, our prayer today is acceptable to the Father. So I'll leave it at that. If you are blessed by this message, please share it with others. Be sure to subscribe to get notified of future episodes. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.